All right, grab a Bible and turn to Acts 20, Acts chapter 20. And uh, as you're turning there, let me just tell you, um, on, you know, obviously August 5th is next Sunday. Then August 12th, we are going to have um, a number of high school students that are going to be baptized uh, here during the services. And I'm going to give an open call uh, for perhaps you to come forward and be baptized and for all of uh, the folks that will be coming. So uh, August 12th is going to be a big day as well. So you need to be praying for that. And you certainly don't need to miss either day because uh, God's going to do some big things. So, uh, so we're in Acts chapter 20. And um, we're, we have been, you guys, we have been in this series all summer long. We've called it Gospel Gone Viral. We, we've really been asking the question, what is it that causes you know, the good news of Jesus to spread from person to person. Like what, what's really behind that? And the book of Acts gives us the chronicle of, of the spreading of the gospel. So we've been, we've been looking at this all summer long. And today we finish up that series. And, and uh, so it's been an, been an awesome series. But we're going to finish up today in Acts chapter 20. And let me just kind of set it up for you today. What we're going to read is, is really Paul's farewell speech to the church at Ephesus, to the, to the Ephesian elders there. An elder is just a, a church leader. And he gives a farewell speech there. And what you're going to find is that this, the mood of his speech is um, a little bit somber, if you will. It's, it's, uh, it's very reflective and uh, kind of somber because he doesn't think he's ever going to see these guys again. And uh, Paul is going to leave Ephesus. He's been there three years He's helped this church get up and going. He's invested his life. Uh, he's invested so much into this group of people. Now he's leaving them. He's going to Jerusalem. And then from there, he's going to Rome. And he expects to be martyred for his faith, which is what we think happened to the Apostle Paul. And so he has a feeling that he is not going to see them again. And uh, boy, was he right on that. Now, let me just ask you the question here. If you were giving a farewell speech, what would you include in yours? Like if you were writing your own eulogy, if you could write it, what would you say? Have you thought about that? Like if, let's just simplify it even more. Think about your, your headstone on your grave, the tombstone, right? What would you inscribe on your tombstone if you, if you had the choice, all right? Just think about that. I was kind of surfing the internet and uh, I was kind of looking around for funny things people put on their tombstones. Um, somebody put this, hey, I told you I was sick. I thought that was pretty good myself, but, um, here lies the body of Jonathan Blake. Stepped on the gas instead of the brake. Here lies an atheist, all dressed up and no place to go. Um, here lies Fred the dentist in the biggest cavity he ever filled. And then this one, I love this one. Died from not forwarding that email to 20 people in the next five minutes. <laughs> Man, that is so profound, isn't it? What are you going to put on your tombstone? What would you include in your farewell speech? I mean, the big farewell speech. What would you put in that? I think what we're going to see is Luke, the author of the book of Acts, gives us some insight into what Paul said to these brothers that he was very close with in Ephesus. So we're going to read this. It's chapter 20, verses 17 through 38. And I'm going to invite you, if you are willing and able, would you stand for the reading of the word of God this morning? 
Now from Miletus, he sent to Ephesus and called the elders of the church to come to him. And when they came to him, he said to them, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. How I did not shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to the Jews and to Greeks, to Greeks of, of repentance toward God and faith in our Lord Jesus. And now, behold, I'm going to Jerusalem, constrained by the Spirit, not knowing what will happen to me there, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may finish my course in the ministry that I received from the Lord Jesus to testify to the gospel of the grace of God. And now behold, I know that none of you among whom I've gone about proclaiming the kingdom will see my face again. Therefore, I testify to you this day that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. Pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. I know that after my departure, fierce wolves will come in among you, not sparing the flock. And from among you, your own selves will arise men speaking twisted things to draw away the disciples after them. Therefore, be alert, remembering that for three years I did not cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And now I commend you to God and to the word of his grace, which is able to build you up and give you the inheritance among all those who are sanctified. I coveted no one's silver or gold or apparel, you yourselves know that these hands ministered to my necessities and to those who are with me. In all things, I have shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of the Lord Jesus, how he said, it is more blessed to give than to receive. And when he had said these things, he knelt down and he prayed with them all. And there was much weeping on the part of all. And they embraced Paul and they kissed him, being sorrowful, most of all because of the word he had spoken and that they would not see his face again. And they accompanied him to the ship. This is the reading of God's holy word. You may be seated. All right, so what's interesting about this passage um, is this, that the entire book of Acts is really just built around the evangelistic messages of Peter, Paul, and Stephen. All right, so they give these evangelism talks, sermons, speeches, whatever you want to call it. This is the only occasion where there's a speech given to a group of Christians. It's the only occasion in the book of Acts. And it's hugely significant for us. And, and so as we think about really the gospel going viral to viral, and we think about the Apostle Paul because obviously it went through him. It went viral through him. I think the question for you and me is, you know, what kind of person enables the gospel to actually go viral? You know, what is, how would you describe a, a contagious Christian life? How would you describe that? What, what, is, what does that actually look like? 
Well, I think in this passage, we have a description of a viral life. A life that infects others with the good news of Jesus. And I think there's four characteristics, and I want to look at these. And the first one is this. I think the first characteristic of a life that is viral, it's this. A life that shares the truth. You know, you want to talk about the gospel going viral through a life. It goes through a life that shares the truth, that actually communicates the truth. And let me just, let me just show you what I mean. Go back and look at verse 20. And I want you to notice how Paul describes what he did among them. He says, he says this, you yourselves know, skipping down to verse 20, how I did not shrink from declaring to you. All right, that word declaring is preaching, okay? So how I didn't shrink from declaring to you anything that was profitable, and teaching you in public and from house to house, testifying both to Jews and to Greeks of repentance towards God and faith in our Lord Jesus. So, so notice a couple of things there. What he's saying is, I was faithful in preaching and teaching to you. I, I didn't shrink back, he says. I, I gave you everything God gave me, is what he says. And, and so you skip down and look at verses 20. 26. He says this, therefore I testify you to this day that I, that I am innocent of the blood of all, for I did not shrink from declaring to you the whole counsel of God. So it, what, what he's talking about is, is he's talking about, I was faithful in giving you the word of God. I, I gave it to you day in and day out. I shared the truth of God's word with you. That's what he's saying. That's the case that he's making. And he, and he even says it twice. It's so important. He emphasizes it by saying it twice in a short amount of time. Now, did you notice too that he says, I didn't shrink back from giving it to you? What in the world does he mean by that? I think what he means by that is he, he's basically saying, I wasn't afraid to share the truth with you. I, I didn't shrink back in fear. And he mentions that twice. Now that's fascinating. Why, why is he saying that? Because I think, I think he understands that the word of God, the word of God offends people. And I think if anybody knew that, Paul knew that because kind of everywhere he went to share the gospel, people picked up a rock and threw it at him. And so what he's saying is he's underscoring the fact that even though, you know, the word of God and scripture and the gospel is offensive to people, I didn't hold back in fear from giving it to you. I gave it, I gave the whole counsel of God to you. And I did it regardless. Now, here's the thing, you know, and if you, you, you know, we've been talking all summer long through this series that we, that we really want to be bold and we want to be, we want to go on offense, you know, as a church and as Christians, we want to share our faith. We don't, we don't want to be offensive, right? That, we don't want to do that. But we have to understand, we have to be realistic that, that the word of God itself offends people. It just does. And so, you know, if you talk to any non-Christian for any length of time, I guarantee at some point they're going to say, well, you know, I like some parts of the Bible, but there are other parts I really find offensive. You ever heard anybody tell you that? It's really true. Now, why is that? Well, I think the reason why that is, is because, you know, God's word is living and active. The word of God is alive. And what the word does is it convicts us and it challenges us and it corrects us. And you know what? We don't like to be corrected. And we don't want to change. We're just kind of set in our ways. 
And that's the reason why it's offensive. Now, I don't have time to kind of talk about this, but I think that the reason, you know, the reason why, you know, is it's offensive because it's the word of God. And I think that's an evidence that it's the word of God because it offends people. I really do. If, you know, if the Bible was just man's ideas, it really wouldn't be that offensive. But because God has chosen to, to reveal himself through it to us, it convicts us and challenges us. And I think that's the mark of divine inspiration. So what Paul is saying in this passage is this. I'm a, I'm a courier of the message. I'm a transmitter. I'm a conduit of the message. Now, look, look at what he says back in verse 26, because he says something interesting. I don't know if you caught it, but he says this. He says, therefore, I testify to you this day that I'm innocent of the blood of all. Now, what in the world is he talking about there? I mean, that's kind of a strong statement. What's he talking about there? What he's saying is this. He's saying that I've done my duty to share God's word, but I'm not responsible for how you respond to God's word. That's not on me. That's on you. I've been faithful to give you everything God's given me, but I can't control how you respond. My job is just to make sure you've, you've heard it. That's what he's talking about there. He's talking about this is, and he uses this strong language. He, he's talking about this is a life or death issue. This is how important it is. This is life or death. There's blood riding on this. And it's, it's hugely important. And he said, I didn't shrink back from giving you everything God gave me. Now, you know, if, I mean, think about it. If, if you were in danger and I knew you were in danger and you didn't know you were in danger. And I just said, I'm, I'm not going to worry with it. And I just go my own way. I would be, you guys, I would be the biggest scoundrel on the face of the earth, right? Like if I had the cure of cancer I'm the only one that had the cure and, and you were battling cancer. And I'm like, I'm not going to share it. You know, I would be, that would be the epitome of selfishness and evil. And what Paul is saying is this, you know, in tears, day in and day out, I shared the word of God. Greeks, Jews, everybody in between. I, I was faithful in giving, you know, giving out the word of God. Now, here's, here's the thing, church. The gospel is simply this. It is, it is the announcement that all of humanity is under the judgment of God because of sin and rebellion against God. That's what the gospel is. The gospel is good news, but it begins with bad news. And the bad news starts with you and I are dead in our sins and our trespasses, and there is nothing we can do about it. We can't pull ourselves up. We can't get up out of the mud. We, we are dead. But that's where the good news comes in. Because the gospel says this, that, that Jesus did for us what we could not do for ourselves. That he, he lived a sinless life and he died a sinner's death in our place. And that if you will believe in Jesus Christ and put your whole trust in his grace, God will save you and give you eternal life. Now, here's the thing. As a preacher and teacher of the gospel, my job is to make sure you hear that week in and week out. But I can't control what your response is to that. 
that's on you. That's on you. And so when we're sharing the gospel with others, we can't control what their response is. Our job is to do what we can control, and that is to make sure that they've heard the word of God. So let's just, let's just apply this for a minute, all right? Let's just get really practical. Think about your network of family members and friends and coworkers and neighbors. Think about, I mean, if we could just map all of that out, that would be pretty amazing to see the, the relational network represented in this room. Here's the question I have. Have you been faithful in sharing the gospel with your family members and your friends and your neighbors? Have you been faithful to that? Because church, that's what God has called us to do. And that is what God has called us to be. A viral life is a life that shares the truth. It doesn't mean you're obnoxious about it. It doesn't mean you hit somebody over the head with it. But it does mean you love people so much that you want to see them understand the truth of the gospel. Now, let me, let me show you how Paul, how Paul characterizes what this looks like. Because I think he gives us a realistic picture. Look at verse 30, 31. Look at what he says. Therefore, be alert, uh, remembering that for three years I didn't cease night or day. To admonish you, that means to strongly encourage, to warn, to caution. I, I didn't cease night or day to admonish everyone with tears. And you, get the, you get the seriousness of that? Why did he do it with tears? Because church, eternity is what's at stake. I mean, eternity is what's in the balance here. And Paul knows that. And, and he's... You know, he's sharing with them, he's admonishing them to, to be reconciled to God because the stakes could not be any higher. That's what he's saying. And so I think the real question for us is, do we believe the gospel? I think the real question for us is, do we believe in heaven or hell? And I know probably what many of you are thinking, you're thinking, now, Scott, you don't, you don't really believe in hell, do you? I mean, like an educated person doesn't believe in hell. Well, let me, let me just address that for a minute. Do you know that Jesus talked about hell more than he did heaven? You know that? Most of what we know from Scripture about hell comes from the mouth of Jesus. Now, why is that? Because hell is real. I mean, think of it this way. You guys, if hell is not real... Jesus dying on the cross was the dumbest thing he could ever do. Because what that means is, it means your choices and mine really don't make, make a difference. Right and wrong doesn't matter. Because you can just kind of do whatever you want to do, right? And so I think what we need to come to grips with is the fact that there are a lot of Christians in the United States living in complacency about this issue and about their family members who are far from God when really the gospel demands something of us. It demands that we share and be burdened for them. You know, I was thinking, I don't know if you've uh, been on a cruise ship, um, but have you ever really thought about the difference between a cruise ship and a tugboat? You know, fall break, believe it or not, is just around the corner. And I, I guarantee some of, you've, some of you've got trips planned for that. And I, I would bet anything that if I went up to you and said, hey, you know, fall break's coming up. Uh, what are you going to do on fall break? Um, well, and, and, you, and I bet anything, none of you would say, well, 
you know, we're going cruising on a tugboat. We're so excited about that. We just can't wait. We heard it's really fun. We're going to do it all week, man. It's going to be awesome. I guarantee you're not going to say that. You know, what some of you are going to say is, we're going on a cruise, man. We're going, I mean, we're so excited, you know. We're going on a cruise. Have you ever really thought about the difference between a cruise ship and a tugboat? You know, a cruise ship is built for beauty. It's built for distance. It's built for comfort. It's built for leisure. It's built for fun. It's built for eating. I mean, the best eating you could ever do, right, on a cruise ship. I mean, and a cruise ship can go anywhere. But, you know, a tugboat is really different from a cruise ship because a tugboat really can't go anywhere. It's not built to just go anywhere. Really, a tugboat has to stay in a, in a certain harbor where it patrols. You know, there's nothing mechanically beautiful or impressive or you know, there's nothing aesthetically impressive about a tugboat. I mean, they're just kind of ordinary looking boats. And, and really, you know, a tugboat is built to maneuver and it's built, it's very powerful. And what it does, the sole purpose of a tugboat is to pull another ship into safe harbor. And I think that's a great metaphor for what the Christian life is really all about. I think there's some of us that we think our lives are supposed to be lived on cruise ships comfortable, full of leisure and fun, and we just kick back and relax. When in reality, the gospel calls us to be tugboats, moving people into safe harbor. That's what we need to do. And I think that's a life that is viral. It's a life that shares the truth. And so we can't control people's responses, but we can control sharing the truth of God's love for people. I mean, how many people you know, how many people need to know that God is with them and God loves them and has a plan for them? Well, how are they going to know, friends, if we're, not, if we're not pulling them in to that safe harbor? So that's the first characteristic of a viral life. It shares the truth. But the second characteristic of a viral life is that it's God-centered, not self-centered. All right, let me show you this in verse 18. Notice what he says. He says, you yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time from the first day I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility, with tears and trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. What he's talking about there is, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm with you. I was with you, you know, every, every step of the way. Now, you guys know how leaders typically talk when they talk, right? When you see a great political leader or, or a great athletic leader of some kind, when they get up and talk, what do they usually talk about? They talk about their achievements. They talk about their performance. They talk about all the things that they've been doing. Isn't it interesting? It, Paul's a leader, but he's not talking about that. He's talking about humility, tears, and trials in the three years that he was with them. That's what he's talking about. Isn't that fascinating? And, and what's even more fascinating is when you look up that word humility, you know, we see it as a virtue, but you know, in Greek, in Greek, the word humility means weakness. In Greek, the word humility really means to be brought low and defeated. In other Greek literature, that word for humility is really an insult used, for other, used on other people. And so in the Bible, it's used 200 times and it's a virtue. How does it get from you know, being an insult to being a virtue. Here's how it gets it. Because, church, listen, Christian ministry is not about, you know, extraordinarily talented, 
men and women and students who are incredibly gifted, incredibly talented, and incredibly, you know, knowledge of the Bible, and they have their lives all perfect. It's really not about that. It's about an extraordinary Savior. That's what it's about. That's why humility is a virtue, because it recognizes we have a great Savior. The greatness is not us. The greatness is in the Savior's love for us. That's what it's about. And I think what Paul is really trying to do is he doesn't want to leave them an example that they can admire. I think he wants to leave them with a Savior that they can trust. And man, is there a big difference. And weakness and tears and trials are how the sufficiency of our great God is manifested. Weakness tears and trials. That's how God's greatness comes out. It doesn't come from, you know, our talent and our ability and all the things that we know and how our life, you know, we got it all together. It doesn't come from that. Christian ministry, Christians living and serving other people, Christians living a viral life, it happens through reliance on Jesus. You know, you know, the the biggest misconception about Christianity is this. We think, we think Christianity and we think growth in the Christian life is getting on this escalator of progress up to God. And we climb that escalator of progress through our own effort, through doing more, trying harder, and really using our willpower and overcoming and mastering the Christian life. And then we just kind of pause for a minute. We think, man, you know, I'm doing pretty good. Look at all the stuff I'm doing. I don't do this anymore, and I don't do that anymore. And, and uh, man, I'm, I'm really good. I'm really mastering this thing. We think the Christian life is climbing this stairway to heaven or something. Can I just be straight with you, church? Christianity is getting on the down escalator. That's what it's about. Where we confess our sins, we confess our absolute dependence on God and our brokenness before him. That's what it is. And that's what he's trying to point them to. Please don't follow my my example, basically, is what he's saying. He's saying what you need to do is trust your great Savior. And so what I want for you as your pastor is I, you know, I, I don't want, you know, I don't want, I want to, I want to point you away from trusting in yourself. Because isn't it true that our default mode is, I got this, I can do it. I can handle it. I'm strong enough. I'm smart enough. I'm talented enough. And the biggest problem in our Christian life is we're not relying on Jesus. We're relying on ourselves. That's the biggest problem. And what Paul is trying to do, and he's, he's trying to undermine that. Have you ever wondered, I don't know, maybe you've, I, I thought this, used to think this all the time, but I think I've got it figured out now. But have you, have you ever wondered why when you, when you become a Christian, God doesn't just instantly make your life easier? You ever wondered that? Well, Jesus, man, I'm trusting you. I'm following you. Why can't you take it easy on me? Why doesn't he make it easier? You know Why? Because you and I have this propensity to believe a lie, we can do it. That's our propensity. And what he's trying to do is wean us off self-reliance and to, and to bring us to a God reliance. And only when you are broken and weak can you testify to the strength of God. It's the only time. 
And God will use tears and trials and weakness in my life and in yours to bring you to that place. The worst thing God could do for any of us is to give us a comfortable and easy life. Because you know why? We would think that comes from us. And we don't need God. You know, if anybody lived a viral life, it was a guy named John Stott. He was a pastor in Great Britain um, in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s. He pastored All Souls Church in London and uh, just a tremendous preacher. If you can read anything on John Stott, you, you should read it. Uh, but he was preaching. He shares the story about uh, preaching and doing an outreach at a large university in Sydney, Australia. And it was multi-night. So they were having hundreds of kids come to these evangelistic meetings and he would preach to them. And um, the night before the very last meeting, he got word that his dad back in England died unexpectedly. And by that last night, he had completely lost his voice. So he could barely talk. And he had one more meeting to go. And so he called a group of students around him and he said, will you all just pray for me? And, and pray that, you know, the word of God from 2 Corinthians would be true of me. That God's strength is made perfect in our weakness. That God's grace is sufficient for us. Sufficient for me in my weakness. Would you just pray that that becomes true for me? And this is what he wrote. When the time came for me to give my address to the students, I preached on the passage in Matthew on the broad and narrow road. He said, I had to get within a half an inch of the microphone. And he said, I just croaked the gospel like a raven. I couldn't exert my personality I couldn't move. I couldn't use inflections in my voice. I croaked the gospel in monotone. And then the time came to give the invitation. An invitation for students to come forward and receive Christ. He said there was an immediate response. A flocking of students coming forward, giving their life to Christ. He says, I've been back to Australia 10 times since that meeting. He said on every single occasion, every time I've been back since that meeting, he will have people come up to him and say, Pastor John, do you remember that last meeting at the University of Sydney, Australia? He said, how could I ever forget? And the student would say to him, that's the night I gave my life to Christ, that very night. Church, there's something about weakness that God is able to use and bless because our strength our pretense of strength has been removed. And I think that's the essence of a God-centered life. That you and I are honest about our weaknesses. We're honest about our sins and our brokenness. We're honest to one another. And I think that's what makes the church unique because we have the place to, be, to do that and it's a safe place because we serve such an amazing Savior. So what kind of weakness and trials and tears are you going through today? Maybe instead of cursing them, you need to thank God for them because they're bringing you closer to him. A viral life, thirdly, is a life that's deeply invested into God's family, deeply invested into God's family, the church. All right, so let me show you this from, from verse 28. 
verse 28, Paul tells them, I want you to pay careful attention to yourselves and to all the flock in which the Holy Spirit has made you overseers. So he's talking specifically to the elders, the overseers of this church. But he says, I want you to pay careful attention to the flock, to care for the church of God, which he obtained with his own blood. You see that? You see the qualifier? He bought the church, Jesus did, with his own blood. Now, I don't know if you realize how many billions of dollars are invested in colleges and universities all over the United States in these huge endowments, all right, like Harvard and Yale. I mean, just about every college and university has some kind of significant endowment, all right? A lot of financial investment into that. And that must tell us we really value education, right? I don't know if you've noticed just in Johnson County how many hospitals are going up around here. I mean, they're all over the place. Millions of dollars being invested in healthcare right here. I, I don't know if you know how many new schools and school renovations are going on around here. We've got a lot invested in the institutions of colleges, public schools, and healthcare facilities. But you know what? None of that matches the investment that Jesus paid to purchase the church, to purchase you and me. That stuff pales in comparison to the price that God paid for you and for me. And I know that you don't have the same calling as the Apostle Paul. I get that. You don't have the same calling that I have. But church, we need to be deeply invested in the church because Jesus obtained her with his blood. That's why. You know, we need, we need to love the bride of Christ. And when people say to me, well, I love Jesus. I just don't like the church. Friends, that, that is a contradiction in terms. You can't do that because Jesus and the church are one, right? They're married. And our earthly marriages are, you know, really signposts to the, to the ultimate marriage of Jesus and the church that we're one. And so when you say that you love Jesus, but you don't really like his church, or you're not committed to his church, or you're not deeply invested in the church, you're basically saying, eh, I'm not really even deeply invested in Jesus either. And so if Jesus died for the church, we need to be devoted to her. And so I know, yeah, I get it. The church is not perfect because you don't have a perfect pastor and we don't have a uh, perfect membership or anything, but, but that's why Jesus died for her, right? And uh, I, I don't know about you, but I, I like politics. I, I love, I'm a political junkie. I, I like to follow what's going on. Uh, but man, our government is messed up right now. Can I get just an amen to that? If you're putting your hope in the United States government, you need, you need a mind recalibration. Because here's the good news of the gospel. You know, Jesus Christ and his salvation and the church is going to outlast the United States government. You can mark my words on that. We don't need to put our hope in the government. We need to put our hope in the body of Christ. What, what does it look like to be invested in the church? What does that just look like practically week in and week out? Look at verse 18. Look at what he says. You yourselves know how I lived among you the whole time. From the first day that I set foot in Asia, serving the Lord with all humility. All right, so we already read that. But, but, but what he's saying is this. I was present with you for three years. I was in the trenches with you. Some of you are not in the trenches. I mean, you attend, 
And that's good. But you're really not in the trenches. Jesus didn't die for church attendance. He died to redeem his bride. He died to build a family. And you can't build, you can't be a part of a family just by checking church off your list once a month. Look at verse 24. I think another way to be invested is to be a servant. I love this. Verse 24, he says this. But I do not account my life of any value, nor as precious to myself, if only I may just finish my course in the ministry I received from the Lord Jesus. He said, all I want to do is just finish what God has asked me to do. That's all I want to do. It's not about my life. It's not about what I want or what's going to make me comfortable, what's going to make me happy or my self-fulfillment or my self-actualization. It's just not about me, he's saying. I don't count my life as value to myself. If only I can just do what God wants me to do. That's all I care about. That's called being a servant. You know, God's given you a mission to the world. Every Christian, he's given a mission to the world. And he's given you a ministry to the church. You should be doing it, whatever it is. And it's all important, no matter how big or small, it's all equally important in God's eyes. Look at verse 35. I love how he says this, because he talks about, in all things I've shown you that by working hard in this way, we must help the weak and remember the words of Lord Jesus, how he himself said, it's more blessed to give than to receive. What Paul, Paul is saying is, The way that you become deeply invested in the church is just by sacrificing, giving, by giving. And and he lived that. And, and, And he's talking specifically about caring for the needs of the poor and those that are disenfranchised by just sacrificing for them, loving on them, giving time, treasure, and talent for them, for their benefit. Why? Because that's what Jesus did. His whole life was giving. You know, if I do your funeral... What do you want me to say at your funeral about you? I would think you would want me to say you were a sacrificial giver. You were a giver. I think that's what you want me to say. Are you living that? In your marriage, you know, as you relate to your parents, are you a giver? You know, as you relate to your friends, are you always taking or are you giving? That's the question. You know, in your career, do you see your career as expression of you and your abilities and your talent and your success? Is it all about you? Or are you leveraging your career for the glory of God? That's the question. And then last, I think a viral life is a life that finishes strong. A viral life that finishes strong. I, Paul knows what's coming. He knows There is a bullseye on him, and he knows it's probably going to be that time. And um, notice what he says in verse 23. He says this, except that the Holy Spirit testifies to me in every city that imprisonment and afflictions await me. That doesn't sound like your best life now, does it? He, the Holy Spirit is telling him, you got, you got difficulty ahead. But look at his attitude. Is he getting down? Is he getting discouraged? Is he ready to throw in the towel? No, he says, but I do not account my life of any value or as precious to myself if only I may finish my course in the ministry I receive. What is he saying? He said, I just want to finish strong. 
I really want to finish strong. I want to, I want to give of myself and finish strong. You know, I don't know if you've read 1 Corinthians 15, uh, but it's a great chapter. And, you know, the Apostle Paul in, in chapter 15, he's, he's writing to a, a bunch of Christians who are just beleaguered. You know, they're just fatigued and they're just kind of worn out. They're down and discouraged. And he just, he really ends the letter about the resurrection. And he's just talking about the implications of the resurrection being true. And he says this, he says, you know, if the resurrection really didn't happen, we're up the creek without a paddle. Because number one, the apostles lied. Number two, we're still in our sins. And number three, we have no hope. If Jesus wasn't resurrected from the grave, that's our situation. But if Jesus was raised from the dead, if he did rise again, then the implications of that are astounding and huge. And specifically, what it means is this. Life, you know, life is about living for that day. And so Paul tells them, be steadfast, be unmovable, abound in the work of the Lord. Don't give up, even though you're tired, even though you're discouraged, even though you're worn out. Don't give up. Why? Because, you guys, death is not the end. Death is the beginning. Because of the resurrection. And the same spirit that raised Jesus from the dead is the same spirit that, raises, that will raise us from the dead. So let's, let's think about it. Some of you are stay-at-home moms. You are raising your kids. You're discipling your kids. And you are not seeing any fruit in the seed that you're planting and watering in the life of your kid. Don't give up. Don't give up. Because I'm telling you, you're having more of an impact than you ever know. Don't give up. Some of you are working moms or single moms, and it is hard, man. It is heavy lifting. Don't give up. Same thing for you. Same thing for you. It's in weakness that God's power comes forward. That's where it comes. Some of you dads, man, you, you work 55 hours a week to, bring, you know, to provide for your family, and you're just like worn out. Let God's strength flow through you by asking for his power in your life. Some of you are single and you want to honor God with your singleness, but it's hard. It's really hard. There's so many difficulties related to singleness. Rely on your Savior. Don't give up. Finish strong, whatever that, you know, whatever that looks like for you. Some of you are older adults and uh, you know, you're in the golden years of your life. And you've lived a long, God-honoring life. And my, my encouragement to you would be to finish strong. You know, don't, don't settle for Sudoku puzzles and reading the AARP magazine, all right? Make disciples. Make disciples of Jesus. Find someone who's young in the faith and pour into them all that God has given you through 70, 80, 90 years of God working in your life. Do that. Finish strong because the resurrection of the dead is real. See, we have this expectation, you know, we, we have this thought that, well, if God really loves me, God's going to make it easy on me, right? Well, you know what? It wasn't easy on Jesus, and it's not going to be easy on us. And so I love what 
you know, Luke says, Luke, Luke tells us in chapter 9 that when it was time for Jesus to go to Jerusalem, he just resolutely set his face towards Jerusalem. Just, just said, let's get this done. I mean, he knew what was coming. And he knew it was going to be hard, just like Paul. We know that life's hard. But a viral life is a life that testifies in the midst of the tears, in the midst of the weakness, in the midst of the trials, that God is good. Let's pray. Lord God, we, we just want to live a viral life. We want to be a viral church. We want to be a church that models belonging to one another, becoming like Jesus, and going beyond. Lord, would you just give our church boldness? Would you just give us a willingness to share the truth? Would you, just, would you help us, God, to not rely on ourselves, but to rely on you? That we would be devoted to one another. That we'd be a community of faith that models love and faith. And I pray, God, that your spirit would just work through us. We're broken, we're sinful, we confess that. But God, you are great and awesome, and we confess that as well. So God, we give you praise, we give you glory, we give you honor. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen.